For KOSU News, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma comes to a settlement with one of the drug makers facing a lawsuit over opioids. Purdue Pharma, maker of OxyContin, is paying $270 million to the state with a lion's share of the money going to Oklahoma State's health center in Tulsa to focus on addiction research. There are still other opioid companies facing a trial at the end of next month. Ryan, what do you think of this settlement? I think it's huge. It's historic. I mean, when you when you look at the context, I mean, we're, uh, you know, very close to the trial date. The Oklahoma State Supreme Court had uh, rejected an attempt to delay the trial. And then there's the context of, you know, potential bankruptcy with Purdue. And, you know, I think that the state saw that there was an opportunity to settle, to get a secured settlement, to protect itself from bankruptcy, and to ensure that the state of Oklahoma would ultimately receive money. A settlement is always better or generally better than a, than a trial verdict because a trial verdict uh, could be appealed, uh, then you've got bankruptcy, and then you're in line behind other secured creditors. This guarantees the state of Oklahoma is going to receive the lion's share of that $270 million, and <clears throat> this is only the first step. I think that it's going to have huge regional, if not nationwide, implications. It's going to have some spillover effect into uh, litigation, federal litigation around the country. A huge congratulations to the Attorney General, to my good friends, Judge Mike Burridge and Reggie Witten, some of the private counsel that have been cooperating and leading this really historic first-in-the-nation settlement of its kind. And and I think that uh, we, we could possibly see some other settlements before that trial date comes up. Neva? I think that's right. I mean, it's it's a, a new day in Oklahoma, as the Attorney General said, and really for the country uh, in the battle against addiction and the opioid epidemic. And I think when you look at this, you're right, uh, Ryan. I mean, there are 35 states, uh, hundreds of municipalities with litigation pending. Uh, so the fact that we as a state were able to get this settlement now and uh, move forward is uh, monumental. And I think the other the other aspect of this is uh, it sets the stage for uh, you know for this company with with the next the next set of cases looming um, you know later this year in the fall 1,600 cases that have been consolidated in Ohio that'll be before a Cleveland uh, uh, federal judge. It just makes this all the more significant. So I think I think when you look at this, you look at the breakout of how the the settlement was itemized. Uh, it's a win 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 across the board for Oklahomans, and more importantly, it begins to really address this epidemic that uh, you know, as as was mentioned in the uh, um, in the case in the in the court filings that Oklahoma uh, had uh, uh, put forward, that we are the uh, we lead the nation in non medical use of painkillers. Uh, so, I mean, this is I mean, this is an epidemic in our state that uh, really is long overdue being addressed. And the fact that even in 2015, we had a, over 800 uh, deaths related to uh, uh, to the, the addiction issue. So um, I think that uh, I applaud also, as as you have said, Ryan, uh, Attorney General Hunter and all of those that have been involved. Uh, certainly there will be questions that will start to come forward. We're already seeing that from lawmakers questioning whether uh, you know, should it, how should this have been directed? Were they in the position to direct it all to one university versus multiple universities and on and on the story goes? But the upshot for this week is it's a national news story that uh, has uh, strong implications for a positive uh, a positive result for Oklahomans. And a pretty good idea for uh, my, uh, Attorney General Mike Hunter to not join in this class action lawsuit of other states. Yeah, well, and the way that we 
structured our lawsuit here in Oklahoma, we had very, even though there were more defendants here, they were limited to manufacturers. And so we didn't have this huge sprawling class action that dealt with distributors, you know, pharmacy companies, uh, pharmacy uh, uh, dispensaries, you know, this was a a manufacturer based lawsuit. I think that, you know, there is some heartburn over the fact that the Sackler family here may seem to be getting off because, uh, you know, they get to pay the settlement and walk away. When they walked into that trial, if they walked into that courtroom in Norman, Oklahoma, there were going to be videos, uh, video cameras in that courtroom. It was going to be televised. Everybody was going to see it. And there was some really damning evidence. Now, the, the attorney general had a, a real choice to make and the council had a real choice to make. Do we take this money and invest it moving forward in the state of Oklahoma or do we take this opportunity to really you know humiliate and punish this family? Um, and I think that we got a little of both here. And if we had gone into that trial... And even if we'd got a judgment, we couldn't have uh, guaranteed that we would have this huge settlement and this huge investment in, uh, in a, an opioid treatment in the state of Oklahoma and across the country. And you're right. The Sackler family, I mean, they are kind of in the bullseye right now. I mean, the House Oversight Committee uh, just recently uh, asked the company to turn over uh, many documents related to the family uh, and their role in the company's marketing. So, I mean, this is an ongoing, uh, I mean, this is an ongoing big picture look at what uh, still has hundreds if not thousands of lawsuits that still will ensue across the country related to this very matter. The leader of the state Senate forms a working group to look into cost of living adjustments, also known as COLAs, for state retirees. This comes as the Senate is getting a House bill offering a 4% COLA to former state workers. Neva, does this stall the process of giving a COLA to retirees this year? Well, I think the question is, uh, listening to what uh, Senate Pro Tem Treat said, I mean, it looks like he's slowing the train down on this. Uh, it, it, it went through the House, obviously, very quickly and easily. But the question is there's been no actuarial study. There's there's no information really on the the financial impact of this. I mean, granted, everyone recognizes and acknowledges that these folks in, in these pension programs deserve a cost of living adjustment. Uh, this is something that has been a long time coming now. But the bigger question is how do we you know how do we adjust and pay for it? So I think will it will be interesting to see what the Senate ultimately does. But it very well may be you know that they will either slow it down to the point that nothing happens this year, they come back next year, or uh, perhaps they they uh, send the volley back to the House and say instead of four percent, two percent, or some other number. So it's a it's a it's a moving target right now, but clearly going to be part of this ongoing conversation through the end of session. Right. The, the Oklahoma Public Employees Association, the, the real driving lobby behind the effort to increase the cost of living benefit for Oklahoma's retirees. We're talking about school teachers, firefighters, um, you know, the the folks that have have this guaranteed to them. The last time that they got a cost of living adjustment was in 2008. So we're over a decade past now. Inflation has swallowed up a lot of uh, their retirement checks. There are some folks that are reporting that their retirement check is entirely consumed by their insurance check. And so, you know, they're they're just living uh, paycheck to paycheck and even then coming out in the red. And so uh, I think that when you look at where Oklahoma Public Employees Association started out this session, they were they were asking for an 8% increase. There was initially an offer of a 2% increase. The House bill started, you know, got us to a 4% increase. And there's, uh, if you look at where uh, 
I think that there is the question of what that 4% increase would look like to the pension funds, but our pension funds right now are healthier than they've ever been. And I, I think that when we can look and say, you know, firefighters, I think are at 68%, teachers are at 72%. Morningstar uh, says that around 70% solvency is kind of the, the benchmark for a healthy pension fund. So we're right around there. And that's a real improvement from where we've been in years past. Uh, so I think that we're, we're at a point where We've, we've built those pension funds up to a healthy spot. A cost of living adjustment is due, and, and it looks like we can afford it. It is a question, I think, as Neva said, is what it will ultimately be. Even if this bill stalls before committee deadline, if leadership wants there to be a cost of living adjustment, that can happen at some time before the legislature adjourns in May. That's all in budget. They could also go yeah. back and just decide that one. The number of issues at county jails appears to be rising. Nawada County's sheriff resigns over issues at the jail there. A lawsuit levels accusations against Washington County, calling it a debtor's prison. And a second lost inmate shown up in the Oklahoma County Jail. Ryan, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that we're seeing the results of decades of failed criminal justice policy in the state of Oklahoma and and largely shouldered by counties in the state of Oklahoma. And so when you talked about the second lost inmate, that second lost inmate in Oklahoma County Jail, she was picked up on a warrant that had been revoked. She wasn't even supposed to be picked up. She gets picked up, arrested for a warrant that a judge had discharged. She goes in and gets lost in the system. We have people lost in the system for months. You're talking about two individuals. By the end of this week, if not the end of next week, I suspect that that reported number will be over 10 individuals that have been lost in the Oklahoma County jail system. And it's not just Oklahoma County. It's all 77 of Oklahoma's counties. And we we were talking about this beforehand. And so for our listeners, jail and prison are different. Prison is where you go after you've been convicted of crime. The overwhelming number of people sitting in county jails right now are innocent. They've been charged with the crime and they can't bail or bond out. They can't afford to go home to their families and their jobs. And so they're stuck there, but they are as innocent as you and me walking around. That's the presumption of innocent. That's the bedrock of the American criminal justice system. And far too many people end up in jail before they ever go to trial. So when you're driving around, if you're in Oklahoma County and you look at that county jail, or if you're in Wewoka and you're looking at the Seminole County jail, know that the overwhelming number of folks in there, 80, 90% of the people that are subject to dehumanizing conditions, dehumanizing conditions are there. They are presumed innocent. Neva. I mean, it is, it is such a deplorable situation. I mean, in this, in this Nowata County jail situation where, I mean, it becomes not only national news, but international news this week. I mean, when you have a, a newly elected, ju- a newly elected sheriff who uh, uh, resigns basically in a confrontation with a judge uh, who is uh, saying, I'm going to hold you in contempt if you don't do X, Y, Z. Um, and the, and all of the virtually all of the rest of the uh, staff leaving, including the K nine who gave mm-hmm. his uh, uh, Paul resignation, I guess Paul print resignation, as she as she said. Uh, I mean, you've got a you've got a difficult situation that is uh, systemic in the state of Oklahoma. Nawada is one of the poorest. It's I think the third poorest county in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You have a, a county with a million dollar budget. You you trying to trying to uh, incarcerate in jail maybe ten or twelve uh, inmates and yet. Uh, what really came to light was the deplorable uh, conditions that the jail, which is in a building that's almost 100 years yeah. old, I mean, all of these problems that everyone has kind of kicked the can down the road acknowledging but no one wanting to address, but when you have exposed wires and shower areas and you have widespread mold, you have plumbing issues, you have methane escaping into the, the snakes jail, falling out of jail the building, snakes falling out, of, I mean, it's like something out of a bad movie script, and it's something that's got to be remedied. But again, uh, 
about the time you think one place uh, has kind of begun to get a handle on something, you find uh, you know six more six more examples in other counties of of this very same thing. So Oklahoma County obviously continues to be at the forefront just in the discussion. It's escalated by the sheriff and a county commissioner now engaging in a, a kind of a, a war of words. But mm-hmm. the bottom line is we've got to get past these just back and forth discussions or diatribes and move to some real resolution. I mean, in Oklahoma County, I mean, a county that did that uh, built a jail that uh, basically many say was obsolete the day the doors opened in terms of the way it was constructed and, and uh, the way that it can be operated. And now uh, we just continue to acknowledge it's a problem without trying to find a solution. So it is a big, it is a big problem in Oklahoma. And we can't just talk about it. We've got to systematically go about finding solutions. How do you see it? What do you, how do you fix this? Well, number one, we most of those people in those jails don't need to be in those jails. I mean, that's that's it. They're there but pre-trial. But they're also making money for the county. Absolutely, they're making jail. money for the county. Yes. And and the bail bonds lobby is incredibly powerful. They're making money out of this. You've got private phone operators that are making money out of this. You've got you know uh, county sheriffs that want to justify increasing that or maintaining the number of folks on their payroll. I mean, we can talk about the the design of the Oklahoma County Jail, and it's awful. Trust me, I've been there. It is terrible. And, uh, you know, all day long we can talk about it. But at the end of the day, it's systems that put people in that jail. Just to kind of illustrate how terrible things are, Nowata County, they refused to put their inmates back there uh, and were pretrial detainees, uh, put them back in that jail because of all of these problems. They transferred them to Washington County. <laughs> Washington County is the county now that's being sued for running a debtor's prison. And again, that's one of the things that drives folks in is that we put these fines and fees on people that they can't pay, that you know regular people can't pay. But you throw somebody in the criminal justice system that's probably dealing with poverty, dealing with uh, substance abuse, mental health is- issues. Those are a higher risk for that population anyways. And then you put these fines and fees on them and you take as much money out of them as you can get. And then eventually they don't have any money left to give and you throw them in jail. And so we move people from Nowata County where they've got snakes and exposed wires over to Washington County. That's a debtor's prison. You've also got to have a situation though, where all parties come to the table. It can't be the either or law enforcement and on one side, uh, advocates on the other side, trying to move another direction with reform. I mean, at some point, everyone has to come to the, come to the table and find some middle ground. And I think that's what's exacerbating this situation is the unwillingness uh, for that to happen in some sort of systematic fashion. So, uh, you know, I think there have been efforts, but they seem to, you know, they seem to move a few inches and then they fall backwards. And so I think we're uh, we're at a place where there needs to be some real, real assertive leadership uh, on the part of uh, uh, folks at every level of this uh, discussion and problem to really uh, to really see that uh, what happens is good for Oklahomans because you're right, Ryan. We don't need these stories uh, continuing to uh, bubble up uh, over and over and over again um, and and continue to uh, not really address the underlying problems that uh, that are creating it. But now, you know, we've got a sheriff or a former sheriff in Nowata County. I, and that's where I think that this conversation's really started to change because it's law enforcement driving this conversation. ACLU, we've been on here talking about abysmal dehumanizing conditions in county jails for years. But whenever you have a county sheriff saying, I won't go to work there. I won't send my deputies to work there. It's not safe enough for the public servants, for these law enforcement public servants to even walk in and go to work there. You know, that I think is is a real game changer in this conversation. So jails, pretrial detainees, before you've been convicted, prison is where you go after you've been convicted of a crime. McAllister. Yeah, McAllister. Granite. 
One of the state's largest agencies says it needs more money to pay its bills. The Office of Management and Enterprise Services says it's behind on payments on some of bills up to 60 days past due. Officials warn if it doesn't get a $16 million supplemental, other state services could suffer. Neva, do you think OMES is going to get its supplemental? I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the agency said it needed $7 million by Monday, uh, April 1st, just to avoid uh, some serious uh, disruptions in services. But you have the Senate Appropriations uh, Chair basically saying, you know, I think the money is probably probably there, at least uh, this initial, uh, whether it's in revolving funds or wherever it is. And I don't think there's any uh, any enthusiasm on the part of the legislature to uh, come back to a situation like uh, the Health Department 2.0 kind of a situation where, oh, we need this money. Oh, well, after the fact, maybe we didn't need as much or didn't need it. Did, did not need it at all. So I think we're I think we're at a place where they're trying to sort through it. There seems to be a discussion going on that uh, may you know may in fact get get all of the information to to a place where they find actually what they need. I don't think there's it's not that anyone's interested in shutting down agencies. It's more about figuring out. Uh, what we do, not only short term, but you know, as uh, as uh, Senator uh, Thompson has talked about, really looking at this. One of the bills that he has uh, this session is breaking out the IT part uh, in OMES, and that that is a huge component of this overall um, this overall situation, and and perhaps even some of the monies that are you know that are being talked about now as being a shortfall. So, uh, or shortfall at least in the estimation of they think they need it now, as opposed to waiting and not having a supplemental. Ryan, uh, the OMES, one of the largest agencies, was created only a few years ago to yeah. consolidate under uh, to consolidate. Now they're talking about splitting it up. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and when just a and few years ago, back in 2012, so in 2012, it was when OMES was passed. Back in, I think, 2009, Governor Henry appointed the first uh, IT CI chief information officer at then the Office of State Finance. And so OMES was then created in 2012 as a further, even more bold reorganization effort. And it was this idea of consolidating uh, information and technology, creating efficiencies, eliminating redundancies within state agency, trying to, you know, b- put together purchasing power for the state of Oklahoma. And now we're in this situation of saying, well, wait a second, did we create an organization that's that's too big to actually accomplish its mission for these state agencies? And so in an effort to create efficiencies, maybe the state of Oklahoma has now created some inefficiencies. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, what I think is going to be important here is to really look and say, you know, what part of the OMES restructuring in 2012, what part of the consolidation of information and technology that, you know, happened while I was there in 2009, 2010, you know, what part of that is now not working? And, you know, did we move too fast on this and create a system that, you know, now can't hold its own weight? Well, and it may be just the changing focus uh, in this new administration, the new kind of restructuring and, and the move across the board in government. When you look at IT, digital technology, all of the things that are being talked about uh, by the state administration, it's about finding big, big savings. I mean, even uh, just this past week, uh, uh, the new cabinet secretary is saying that he believes that there's a billion dollars in savings out there that can be uh, the result of just innovative digital technology moving, kind of moving in that direction. So IT, when you look at that in the in the uh, grouping in, at OMES, um, when you think about budgeting, purchasing, human resources, HR, those things, 
they seem to, you know, they seem to fit together, at least in my mind, but this IT component very well may need to be extracted out just so there can be, when we're talking of tens of millions of dollars and a, and a, and a focus that is going to go across all agencies, ultimately, it may be to have a real uh, pulse on what's going on and be able to really manage that well and not, not have this continued problem of not enough money moving fast and trying to get some real results. It may make sense. And you also have to think of the leadership. Before this year, it was actually run by Preston Dorflinger, who also got into trouble by running the State Department of Health. So and he left and Denise yeah. Northrup, uh, you know, took his place. Yeah, and, and we're talking about an information technology consolidation that happened over a decade ago. I mean, these right. these things and these systems right. have, have improved, uh, you know, by you know, light years since we've since we first started working on this over a decade ago in the state. So, you know, reviewing it and seeing whether it's still worthwhile or not is you know, something the legislature should do. This week marks one year since the lawmakers passed an historic tax increase to pay for teacher raises and other education needs. House Bill 1010XX was signed by Governor Fallon. Ryan, your thoughts on the one-year anniversary of the teacher pay increase bill? I mean, it's hard to believe that it's been a year. I mean, you go to the Capitol right now, and it's 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 a totally different world than uh, where we were a year ago out at the Capitol with uh, with the teacher walkout. And you know, I think that you know, one of the things that happened was uh, there was this sea change in attitudes towards revenue in the state of Oklahoma and, and the, at the state Capitol. You know, we're, we still don't have a legislature that's tripping over itself to raise the kind of revenue that we actually need to run the state of Oklahoma, but. I think enough lawmakers realized that uh, at some point, you know, they, they and I think you know, a lot of this was the Republican majority, that they had been you know, running a political game for years to get into the majority, but it took them a while to realize, hey, wait a second, we are in the majority, now we actually have to govern and run this state. And we either run it into the ground or we begin to make some investments in things that we care about, like education. And so you saw some Republicans and in leadership say, we're going to do this. They passed these tax cuts with you know, overwhelming Democratic support, you know, a big support from the, the, tax, Repu- increases. the, or the tax increases, uh, passed those, and the Democratic uh, caucus came along mm-hmm. and supported that as well and really drove that issue and got more than I think the Republicans would have been comfortable to do at all. And then the elections happened. And the people that lost elections were people that opposed those revenue increases, people that uh, supported them. You know, nobody paid a price at the polls for supporting revenue increases. And I think that set a tone for this legislative session. They also seem a little with, with newer folks out there that came in in the wake of, uh, of the revenue increases last year. There's, I think a little bit more sober attitude towards governing right now at the Capitol. Uh, and I, I say that and everything could fall <laughs> apart next week, but this session just seems different than it has uh, in years past. Neva. Well, and I think the question is, uh, will it fall apart when we really start talking about how we'll we pay for all of the, yeah. all of the things that we're talking about? Uh, the, House uh, in in the bills that they passed out. I mean, the number is somewhere 130 plus million dollars in actual reductions. I mean, where they took away, they decreased fees, they took away uh, it basically nev- uh, negative revenue bills. I mean, when you look at them, so I mean, you look at that, and then you look at these uh, this the eight or more house bills that passed out that were education related a lot of them have a new price tag on them so i mean when those go to the when those go to the senate side now i think that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of you know the senate now looking at these bills and saying yes that's great you had almost unanimous bipartisan support on your side but at some point we've all got to come back to the table and figure out how much is this costing and where is the money and and does that does that mean that there's some appetite to take all of this money out of the range 
rainy day or do X, Y, Z to get there. I think that's where the rub's going to be. So I think that there's a, you know, there's a profound interest in, in on the part of lawmakers to, uh, t- to continue to move the needle where education is concerned. And I think they've made some, uh, in, in some of the measures that came out of the House, there are some pretty significant changes that, uh, that clearly are on the table. The question is how, how many of them make it to the finish line based upon the total picture of what we need to continue to operate state government across the board. And, you know, I think in years past, walking into those final weeks of the budget negotiations before last year, I would say that the the fee decreases, the things that cut revenue from the state of Oklahoma, that those would have walked in with a greater probability of succeeding than things that invested in increased spending. Um, I don't want to say that the the investments now have an edge, but it's much more of a level playing field walking into those negotiations than it, than it has been in years past. It's still going to be a tough sell to say we're not going to you know cut this fee or eliminate this fee, but you know the political uh, the political balancing act now. I think you know people realize that investments in education get you more political bang for your buck than you know reducing a fee or a license. And not just education, but several different state issues. Yeah, so absolutely. We're talking yeah. about jails. We're talking about yeah. everything else that needs to be paid paid for as well. But when you have these one-time incentives of $5,000 to get uh, certified teachers come back to the classroom, when you the $1,200 across-the-board teacher pay raise, uh, the $1,000 uh, tax credit for teachers, uh, you know, buying supplies, you know, for their classroom, on and on, all of those, as you begin to look at them, all of them do have a, a do have a budget implication. So I think that's what we're going to have to see is, is there going to be a little, uh, is there going to be trimming or is there going to be eliminating or is there going to be let's come back next year uh, and uh, talk this over some more. And I think the governor and the legislature are more reluctant than ever to use one-time funds. So, you know, rainy day money, I, you know, I, I would agree. I, I, I don't think that that's really, I, I think, I think that's going to be a hard sell, particularly in the governor's office, if not with most lawmakers. Yep. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management.